0: So, foundations. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our two-part sort of series, mini-series on just thinking about Jesus as the God-Man, God and Man. So, before we begin, can someone pray for us? Let's go, Isaac. You want to pray? Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this moment. our uh, prayer that they will bless us, open our minds. Amen. Thank you, Isaac. So, we were continuing on in our, our series of uh, Jesus as the God-man. And so, if you remember from last week, our main idea was simply, Beholding the glory of Jesus as God the Son incarnate is vital for both our hearts and our churches. Again, that was, Beholding the glory of Jesus as God the Son incarnate is vital for both our hearts and our churches. Hearts and churches, Okay. And so last week we looked at beholding the glory of Jesus as God the Son incarnate, and so we talked about how we are primarily exercise uh, our exercise is a effort in beholding glory, not a heady thing but a heart thing. We want to see who Jesus is and his the beauty of his person. That's going to help us to love Jesus more, and we need to think about him rightly. And so we and then we looked at uh, Jesus as God the Son. So he he is God. Incarnate, God the Son incarnate, so fully God and fully man and we talked about what that means and saw from the Bible Passages like Philippians 2 how he can be both God and man how he adds humanity to himself So this week we're going to focus on the second part of our main idea second part It's going to be vital for our hearts and our churches hearts and our churches But before I do this we're going to get into some theological terms today And so I just wanted to commend to you guys a resource if you are interested in learning more about this. So this book is written by a guy named Stephen Wellam. He is a professor of Christian theology, and he's written a book called The Person of Christ, An Introduction. So it's it's meant to be a short, it's easy to grasp. There's even a lot of, uh, one of the sheets I was gonna give to you guys, there's a glossary in the back that's really helpful, just defining all of these terms. And he's done all the hard work for us. So he's read all the really old guys and the really smart guys, and then puts it into like this, easy, comprehensible version. And so he gets very deep, but it's understandable. I do, you do have to like sit with the, the ideas for a little bit, but he's, it's not one of those thousand page theological books that you have to commit to like a year for reading and then you don't even know what you read. So um, yeah, I would commend this book to you. And uh, if you do want to buy it and read it, uh, I would be more than happy to talk with you about it. So send me an email. Or, if you want to talk with one of our elders, I'm sure that they would love to, to dialogue with you about this topic, because it's a very important thing, as we're thinking about Jesus, right? <laughs> that's pretty central to our faith uh, as Christians, those uh, followers of Christ, and so if you want to dialogue and dive deeper into this topic, please read this book as an intro. There's lots of other books, but, and then talk about it with somebody. So, <clears throat> again, we are looking at God the Son uh, Incarnate and why that's vital for our hearts, And for our churches. So as we come to our hearts, and just uh, resuming back from last week, as we think about this as an exercise in beholding glory, I want to read you guys a quote uh, that helps, I think, frame the question of how is Jesus the God-man? in a way that I think we assume and helps uh, call out certain assumptions that are helpful for us to think through. So this is a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, who has, uh, he was giving a, a message on Jesus as the God-man. And he's reflecting on a question. So he says, You see, here's our problem. We are not amazed by the question, why the God-man? We assume, of course, he would come. The gospel begins to amaze us when we learn who it is who has come. It's staggering to the intellect. Indeed, I think one can say if your intellect has never been staggered by the reality of the incarnation, you don't know what incarnation means. It doesn't mean Jesus was a little baby. It means the eternal, infinite, divine one, worshiped by cherubim and seraphim, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, infinite in his wisdom, being, power, majesty, glory, who at a word could dissolve the world that had sinned against him, was willing to come into this world and assume our flesh in order to become our savior. It's overwhelming. That's the great thing about the gospel, isn't it? It's never done overwhelming you. Wave upon wave upon wave of worship and adoration, that God the Son should come for the likes of me. And not just because it's the likes of me, but it's the one who is without parallel, in infinite majesty, who has done this. Oh, Josh found a way. Thank you, Josh.
1: Thank Jason.
0: Yeah, so if you could give everyone one of those, that would be awesome. Thank you so much, Josh and Isaac. So those are going to be coming around now. So, yeah, we're, I just wanted to uh, start with that question, because I think oftentimes when we're thinking about th- that topic, or the topic of the God-man, we often assume that Jesus had to come for us, right? We assume that, oh, he must have come, but we, when we do that, we lose part of the beauty of the incarnation, that God didn't have to, but he did this of his own will, and it, it's only for us to save the likes of you and I. So, as we continue to think about our hearts, we don't want to assume that Christ had to come. And on those papers, you will see, I believe, two sort of blanks that, first, of what it means for our hearts. The first one, there's a reference to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Dakota, do you mind reading that for us? Hebrews seven, twenty-five. Yes, sir.
2: Yes. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near God through him, since he
1: always lives to make intercession for them.
0: Yes, thank you. So, as we think about Christ as being the God man, his incarnation means. Oh, I think we need one over here. Josh or Isaac? One here. Thank you. So his incarnation means when he is, because he is, remember from last week, he is fully man. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save us fully. Not partially, but all of us, right? We are sinful to the core, but he came and was uh, fully man, and therefore he's able to redeem all of our man. All of humanity he can now redeem because he was fully man. So we need to uphold the reality that his full humanity is needed for us, to, for us to, for him to save us from the and this is quite comforting, isn't it? I don't know if you ever realized if how just sinful you are and how bad you are. And if you haven't, it's probably going to happen at some point. Um, but you're going to realize one day that you are sinful, not just a little bit, but to the core. And so it's very comforting to know that Jesus can save your full being because he was fully man. Second, He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Sympathize with our weaknesses. Can someone read uh, two passages, Hebrews 2, 14 through 17? We can get that. Anybody? Yes, thank you. And then Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews four fourteen through 16. Any, oh, I thought hand. Anyone? Oh, thank you. And
2: it's to make propitiation for the sins of the people.
0: Thank you. Hebrews 4.
1: Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
0: Amen. Those verses are just comforting over and over again to me personally. It's just we go through life's hardships and we realize over and over and over again that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like. There's just a couple of things that we can point to in the life of Jesus. We see in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was sorrowful, Matthew 26, yet he never sinned. He was angry, Mark 3, 5 but he never sinned. He was falsely accused, but he never sinned. And so similarly today, I think a lot of times we are tempted, right? We are sorrowful and tempted to sin. We are angry and we are tempted to sin. We are falsely accused. Twitter is, <laughs> seems like Twitter is falsely accusing everybody, but, we are, but Jesus never sinned. So we can have hope in that, that even though we have been, uh, all those things are coming at us. Jesus has set an example for us, that even though he was tempted, yet without sin. So we too can realize that we can, uh, with his help, try to not sin and strive to not sin. Question. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how the
2: Holy Spirit plays a role in that and how we actually? Because it's like so easy to think, okay, now we can.
0: Yes, are you speaking about the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus' life or the Holy Spirit's role in our lives? Uh, I guess, are you able to touch on the world? Yes. So, uh, regarding Jesus, turn to John 3, verse 34. John 3, verse 34. And when you get there, can you read that for us? Thank you. So, that verse just said that Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. So, I think the this, this Spirit uniquely helped Christ, and he was given the Spirit without measure. Okay? So, he was fully human, but the Spirit uniquely helped Christ. So, we should... That same Spirit, the Spirit of God, is available to us now also. We may not have it in the same measure. We're told not to grieve the Spirit as uh, humans, like, as without divine nature, um, but so we're told to not to grieve the Holy Spirit and to uh, yet pray for the Holy Spirit's help in our lives. But Jesus was uniquely gifted by the Spirit to carry out his divine mission. But we too, now, because of the Spirit's help, Jesus says, I'm, uh, even though he's going away, he's giving us the Holy Spirit to help us. And so that's a, a comfort for us, that even though we probably won't be, well, definitely won't be sinless, we can have the Spirit's help and strive to, to, to not sin. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Does that answer your
2: question? Sort of. So for the second part, Yes. Is it, is it that we are a new creation, and then now we don't have sin, or is it because, strictly because of the Holy Spirit, that we have the ability not to sin? Or not that we
0: don't sin, but, yeah, that we have the ability not to sin? Yes, yeah, so I think, if I'm understanding you rightly, you're saying, is it that by virtue, by virtue of being a new creature, mm-hmm. new creation, we don't desire to sin anymore?
2: Or we, we have the ability not to sin or is it because of the Holy Spirit now that we have this, uh, is it that how we're able not to sin? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, so if we, now that we're a new creation we don't desire to sin or is it because of the Spirit that we can't sin? Yeah.
2: Yes. But but that we don't we're not able to sin. Like so now we have the capability not to sin. Say it in a different She's way for me. Like, is it
1: New creation. creation. Is it that we have the Holy Spirit that we are able to not execute on sin and resist temptation? Like, could I resist temptation only because I have
2: the Spirit? Or is it because I'm new in Christ?
0: So I think they're kind of tied together from understanding the question. Because yeah, new creation, right? So promises of the new covenant, like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. The, when we're born, uh, we are reborn, and the Spirit now uh, writes the law on our hearts. So it, what was external is now internal. And in addition to that, now at, by, because we have been born, we are no longer, as Romans says, slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. So where we couldn't, everything we did, we were a slave to sin. Now we are a slave to righteousness and to Christ. So, does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions on that? It's the Spirit who makes us in a new creation. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> okay. So, now I want to. Any questions on our hearts? Any things you guys want to point out from this has been personally helpful for you? No? Okay. So, as we move on now to our churches, our churches, we're going to examine some key things that help us to defend this gospel in our churches. So, this understanding of who Jesus is, as we saw last week, from Scripture, is now important that we keep those same truths in our local churches. And so, this is applica- applicable to you wherever you would go. How many of you guys have moved churches before? You've switched churches in this room? Yeah. Okay, so that's a lot of us, right? And nobody, uh, hopefully we all can stay at Delray, but sometimes life just has, uh, works out differently and we have to move churches or something. And so this is vital for us when we go to a different church, should we ever, we want to go to a gospel preaching church. And that practically means that we need to uphold these same truths of who Christ is. We need to make sure that not just this church, we need to ensure Delray Baptist is teaching these things, but also whatever church we should go to is upholding these same truths about who Christ is. So this is a very important matter that we don't grow out of while we're still before heaven. So <clears throat> establishing some terms is going to be helpful in making this church and uh, this church and any other church you go to, make, making sure that this church preaches the correct gospel. Right. So we need some terms. And so I think one of the <coughs> excuse me blanks in your paper is extra biblical versus unbiblical. Right. Should be there. Yes. Okay. Someone tell me what the difference is between those two terms. What am I going for here with these? What do you guys think? Extra biblical versus unbiblical. Uh, using a source other than the Bible, that would be which one, extra biblical or unbiblical?
1: For, ec- uh, for extra, biblical.
0: Okay, using a source other than the Bible, but that say the last part.
1: So, using a source that isn't the Bible, but it references the Bible to or pro gospel.
0: Okay. <clears throat> yes, pro gospel. So, using something else outside the Bible. So.
2: Okay. <clears throat>
0: unbiblical would be something other than Christ. Okay, something other than Christ. Other so than the gospel. yeah, talking about other than the gospel for unbiblical. Yes. Extra
1: biblical is something that is you don't say explicitly referenced in scripture. Unbiblical is something that's contrary.
0: Yeah, so I think that's um, in this context I think what is going to be helpful for us. So what you're saying extra biblical it, d- it may not be spelled out in scripture. So you may not see the word for example, trinity. In Scripture, but do we think that's necessarily unbiblical? Hopefully we would all say no, (laughs) if we're perfection-to-be Christians. We would say, yes, the Trinity is in Scripture. It's not, the word Trinity isn't explicitly in Scripture, but that doesn't mean that just because we don't see the exact word, that the concept, what it's saying, is unbiblical, that it's against what the Bible teaches. And so as we get into terms, the reason why I bring that up now is because we should see that these words, even though they may not be like communication of attributes or hypostatic union, those things, those may not be in the Bible, extra biblical, but they are not unbiblical. We're simply using these words to help us in our pursuit of seeing what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. And so again, going back to this glory thing, that all this stuff is done so that we can see who Jesus is and glorify him and worship him correctly, okay? So, in order to do this, we're going to see some various heresies first, and then we're going to get into uh, the Council of Chalcedon, which is, yes, historical, whatever, but mainly a lot of these terms sort of stem from that, and it is, uh, there's going to be a lot of important things that we're going to notice about who they say Jesus is. They're refuting. We don't say he's this. Instead, we say he's this. So, negative, he's not this, but positively, he is this. Okay? So, first... A survey of various heresies, I think, is the next bullet on your sheet. Isaac, do you mind if I get a paper? Yeah. Thank you. And one of, one of each, the definitions also. Yeah. Thank you. So, <clears throat> thank you. Yes, a survey of various heresies. Okay. So, first, number one, Arianism. Arianism, which, I don't know if you guys have ever heard. Basically, they just are teaching that Jesus was not fully God. They are teaching that Jesus is not fully God. He was the first created being, but he did not share the divine essence or nature. He was not fully God. And so the contrast to that is that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Anyone know who modern day Aryans are today? Mormons. Uh, I was thinking of Jehovah's, Jehovah's, Wit- Jehovah's Witnesses. yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses. So. Um, So, I think that there's, I, if I'm remembering right, there's a little bit of distinction okay. between um, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They might be also <laughs> Aryans, uh, <laughs> So, it's possible that sounds pretty Arian, <laughs> what you just said. Um, so, yeah, thank you for pointing that out also. Um, but, yeah, so, Arianism, that Jesus is not fully God. Next, Apollinarianism. The, think of the word flesh. So, the divine word removed the soul of a human being. So... Basically, you have this uh, Jesus comes and God is incarnate. The word becomes flesh. But when he becomes flesh, he really kind of just like kicks the soul out and says, get out of here. I'm just taking on this like sort of body kind of and then going about. But it's not really the, the he's not fully human who's actually doing things. It's more of kind of this divine being that's embodied some sort of fleshly form and really just has the, the bones, but no sort of soul connection at all to being human okay that's so that is a not a uh a christian position and uh, one of the church fathers gregory of Nazianzus, says this is number one he says what is not assumed is not healed what is not assumed is not healed so why that's important is because if jesus didn't fully assume or add to himself humanity then he can't fully save humanity So remember, this is all going back to what we talked about in the first week of Jesus adding to himself humanity. And he was fully God, but also fully man. Remember, he grew in knowledge and in wisdom. He was fully human. And so this heresy was refuting that he was really fully human. And the reason why it's important for salvation is because if he wasn't fully man, he can't fully save man. So are you saying in teachings or just ideas of how we think about things?
1: Yeah, just ideas or even
0: teachings. I think, so uh, one, one really cool example that a guy named Michael Kruger did in a short little article that he wrote, he, he talked about our thinking of, of Christ as somehow, sometimes how we think of Superman. He said that oftentimes we think of Christ as this Superman who came and he was on the earth and he was saving people left and right. Uh, but the key distinction between Jesus and Superman is Superman... Is not what. Amen. He's not man, right? He saves us precisely because he's not man. He's he's super. He's not really able. To, er, he's not really able to sympathize with. Ooh, my arm hurts, right? <laughs> like gets shot by a bullet. And he's good. Right? <laughs> just bounces off of him. So he wasn't really fully man. He's not able to, as Hebrews four says, sympathize with our weaknesses, tempted yet without sin. But Jesus comes to save, as we saw last week. Only God can save, and He's going to do it through a man. Jesus comes to save as fully man and so he's not superman in the fact that he's not really man he is different than superman he is actually fully man does that make sense yeah. does that answer your question yes sir okay <clears throat> so number th- three now any question or i'll pause for questions at the end of this uh number three monophysitism it's a mouthful to say i might have said it wrong anyway it just means that they were saying christ's human nature was merged into the divine nature to morph into some new kind of divine human nature so they had this uh this is why we're going to talk about in a second when we see the under enter number two that the person and nature distinction is so important person nature is so important uh because we, if we don't distinguish between person and nature then we have this melding of natures which what's the implications of that so we have god jesus is fully god and fully man if those two meld what happens Yes, it's a new one. And then what happens? There's this God is the eternal creator, right? He, his divinity is not, it's only God that is fully God. If, he's, if his nature is changed, then does that mean God's nature is changed? God is unchangeable. What is it? So we quickly go off into a lot of things that we don't want to go, go down that path. If we don't preserve that there is no mixing of the natures, no mixing of the natures. Okay. So any questions on these heresies? Yeah, so that's oftentimes people bring that up a lot with the Trinity, which again, if you want to think about Trinitarian stuff, Ben Robin Foundation's class from last year was really helpful. It's going to meld well with this. But yes, modalism, very common in the Trinity of the person. So again, in, Tr- in Trinitarian theology also, there is dif- difference between person and being. So there's one God, but three persons. So modalism is saying that the father switches and puts on a different hat and he changes modes, think of modes, Father becomes a son. He's in son mode now. And oh, he's in spirit mode. He's got to do this. And oh, he's in father mode now. So, all these different modes, but then you lose the personhood. So, again, this idea of person and nature very important for us to clarify. Very important. Thank you. Any other questions, comments? No. Okay, let's move on. <coughs> so, Moving on, we enter Chalcedon now, the Council of Chalcedon, approximately 451 AD, so it was a long time ago. Uh, And again, guys, remember, as we're studying this, this is important, not just for what they're saying for, ooh, someone in history said this, this is telling us uh, what the Bible says, it's helping us to understand what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So as we are careful to explore these things, let's do it with a mind towards, we need to see who Jesus is. Okay, so. Chalcedon taught that Christ was fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Okay? So very, that's a helpful language to use also. is He was fully God. Everything that, is entail, uh, that entails being God, he was fully. And he was also fully man. Question.
1: Thinking there's nothing new under the sun, so I'm guessing that during this council of Chalcedon, um, maybe those men, those people were, uh, you know, discussing and debating <coughs> all these concepts, not having the same um, word to uh, express these ideas. But um, just how is it that? even all the way back then before they had the bible in printed form for us uh that they um were debating these concepts like it happened not that long ago you know back in that day and yet already they're tearing the gospel and the reality you know what happened historically you know only a few hundred years prior they're tearing it up and cherry picking how to tear the gospel up and the truth up like that. Like, how do do they accomplish that other than the fact that we have a sinful, wretched heart?
0: Yeah, so I think we do, you're right, we do have sinful hearts, and we don't also rightly interpret the Bible oftentimes. So the,
1: what was that? We selectively seem to forget certain parts, and then it's like, you, you go on this, like, verbiage of, uh, Yeah, blah 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 blah, but then you're missing this one part, brother or sister, and then it's like, oh, that linchpin.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, so that's that's part of the beauty of the church, though, right? Is so these councils. Picture council of Chalcedon. Sounds so official, but just picture some pastors and theologians coming together to discuss who is Christ, because we're afraid that by teaching certain things, we're going to veer off into some other teaching that is going to be like, ooh, now we're not preaching the gospel. So that's what they're really concerned to do at these meetings, is just to say, hey, are we preaching the right gospel according to the Bible? Okay, so that's their main concern. And you're very correct in saying that we've diverged very quickly because we have to be careful with seeing how does the Bible actually speak about Christ? Because that tells us about, again, we talked about this le- last week, of the way he goes about salvation is important for us, but also the way that is, the Bible pictures salvation is needed. So we have a only God can save but he's going to do it through a man. And so we need to uphold these things and be careful to, yeah, deal with them accurately and in a way of what scripture actually teaches. But that is also, we need help in thinking about that. So that's why we're going back to Chalcedon and why they came together together was because they needed help in thinking through these things. And so we always want to do theology in community with people. And also it is important to notice that you, a, lot of these, a lot of times these, some people were teaching certain things and they didn't realize how big of an effect of, on salvation that these things would have. So these are what's called actually heresies. Some people misuse the word heresy today and just throw it around kind of. These are actually heresies because they diverge from the correct gospel. So th- these are, were declared as no Christian should believe this because it teaches something different about who Jesus is in the Bible. So these are very important for us. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Yeah? Okay.
2: The whole bible written down or is, it, is there a, 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 a agreed upon new testament at this point?
0: Like how, how are they together what yeah are they? this is a great question i think i'm forgetting which council it is but i'm pretty sure that by this time they have formally recognized which parts of the bible that we would consider now as inspired scripture so you can recognize so not that they made them but recognize Ooh, this is these are the books that god has said are scripture mm-hmm. so Yes. Wasn't this the first of the councils? Like, this was the first,
1: and the Nicene Creed was, was after this, so the Nicene Creed was then after this one, and I think that's when we got the actual scriptures
2: in.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, fact check me, I believe Nicaea was 325, so, but fact check me on that one. I believe th- Nicaea was 325, though, so I think that would have been before this, which is, I think, possibly, a lot of Trinitarian stuff comes from there, so they were Previous councils. Does anyone?
2: There was also an earlier council that Chalcedon was basically reiterating. It's the Council of Ephesus. So this isn't the first time the topic has brought it up. It's just the largest and best well documented council for this
1: topic. It did say Nicaea was in 325. <coughs>
0: okay, there we go. So yeah, I th- yeah there were councils before this. Nicaea is very big for Trinitarian so modalism, all that stuff. Nicaea, boom. <coughs> uh, any other, would you have a hand? No okay, so yeah, so we're gonna get into now some things that uh has said. As we said, he's fully God and fully man. Number two, this is where we're gonna get dicey. Distinguish between person and nature. Distinguish between person and nature. So flip to this definition sheet now. Definitions, and again, these definitions all come from this book. Okay, so if you wanna find more about these, this book, but person. Can I have someone read person and nature? Someone read person and then someone else read nature. Which person? Yeah, sure. Thank you. And nature? Sure. Thank you.
1: In theology, a nature refers to what a thing is. In regard to God, <coughs> divine nature is what God is, often described in terms of his attributes, which are all essential yeah. to him. Thus, the nature of God is simple, infinite, eternal, immaterial, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and so on. And necessarily so. In regard to humans, the human nature is what humans are often described in terms of a body, soul, composite with corresponding capacities, such as will, mind, and emotions.
0: Thank you. And then, person, and then we'll talk about these. Right.
2: Uh, in regard to the Trinity, this term applies to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who share the same undivided essence and are distinguished by their relations or mode of substance. Can I can't say that word? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. In the divine nature, the Father is par- hmm. characterized by paternity, the Son is characterized by sonship in the Son's Father, and the Holy Spirit is characterized by procession and eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. In regard to Christology, the Son is the second person of the Godhead who at the incarn- Incarnation assumes a human nature. The person is the subject of the nature. in the
0: case of Christ, the person of the Son is the subject of both natures. Thank you. So that was a mouthful, all those fancy theology words, throw them out the window. Basically it's saying, this is helpful for us, it's a clear definition, but what is it saying? The person is the subject, right? So persons will, natures don't, okay? So God the Son incarnate willed to do something. Uh, God the Son in his humanity willed to do this thing so again big picture christ we have again what is it how many persons how many natures say that again three persons one nature oh christ christ Christ. yes one person two natures you guys (laughs) can do this trust me you guys are doing great so one person two natures. so we have one subject so that's why if you look at our main idea beholding the glory of Jesus as God the Son incarnate that is his person as God the Son incarnate so God the Son incarnate is the person he is the subject okay <clears throat> but his there are how many natures two. two natures yes so there are two natures which is the comes into the fully what and fully what fully god, fully man. yes fully god and fully man so those are his two natures one person two natures one person okay question So, I think, I'm, yeah, so after the crucifixion, again, remember he is raised from the dead and we see his glorified body also. So, yeah, so even when Christ, so when Christ dies, he is still, as Hebrews 1 and Colossians 2 talks about, he is still actively sustaining the universe by the word of his power. So he does not stop doing that because then what would happen? Yeah, the world would have stopped, right? If he was not actively sustaining the universe by the word of his power, even in his death, he would have, therefore, uh, then there would have been no more. So his divinity did not stop to exist when he was put to death on the cross. But his human human nature, again, he's composed of body and soul. Body and soul. And so his body was put to death. His human body, human nature, fully human. So he's body and soul. But his soul was still, uh, as human souls are still alive, his soul was still uh, alive. And does that make sense? Yes. Kind of. Did it answer your question?
1: But did he have like a human nature before he came to earth, and does he still
0: have one now? No, he did not have a human nature. So, <clears throat> before he came to earth. So, Philippians 2, like we studied last week, uh, he added humanity to himself. That's part of the reason that virgin birth is so important. This humanity was not existent before Christ was actually born. So it, when he's born, he's actually, his human nature is born. Okay. Yes. Um, second question. I, uh, I think so. Again, chat with me back after this. I would want, I'd love to answer that after. I want to give a better answer. So if you have a question, that email me again. Uh, brettlewis15 at gmail.com I want to say yes, but I also don't want to speak wrongly. So <laughs> we'll just do something. I'm, I want to say yes, though. Uh, question?
1: So the one person, two nature seems pretty intuitive. So how do the
0: heresies grow out?
1: Yes. Uh, so, you know, how do they come
0: yeah, so I think there's just confusion, because it, this is a very confusing thing. There's nothing on Earth that we know that is one person, two natures, right? Everybody you know, everyone you've ever known, and everyone who's ever existed except for Jesus on the Earth has been one person, one nature. So trying to make sense of that gets confusing really quick. Um, and so that's why, yeah, there's going to be some later sort of clarifications that on the back making sense of Chalcedon, because they're going to wonder, how does how does it work that the two sort of natures how do they communicate where, do, where does that happen how is there one subject who's acting but in a different nature does that mean natures are like mixed so but we don't want to say that does that make sense yeah <clears throat> did you have a specific question on that
1: yeah I was just wondering generally is yeah how did the leaders of these heresies you know what made them think oh well you know the one person, two natures is not correct, I'm going to start promoting this other idea that evolved into the heirs.
0: Yeah, I think it was just a misreading of scripture. They tried to make sense of things that were not there, and so the church together categorically rejected them saying these aren't Christianity, but we're just trying to make sense of all this stuff, because this is confusing stuff, and we don't really know how this, at some level there is mystery of how this works out okay any questions on two natures one person sorry two persons one nature sorry oh my gosh <laughs> two natures one person there we go i was confused myself any question on that okay let's move on number three let or number three uh christ's human nature did not have a person of its own so christ is not two persons christ is not two persons very important also Number four, there isn't a new nature formed in Christ. So this is refuting the mono word. Uh, <laughs> it's talking about there's not, uh, there's not one weird new meld between divine and human. Okay? So it's too, uh, there is, isn't a new nature. Okay? It's not a divine human melding. Number five on the back, the sun assumed a complete human nature. Body and soul, the soul, the son doesn't replace a human nature. So this is back to your question about how did, uh, when Jesus died, what does that mean? Body and soul. So he's body and soul. That's what it means to be human nature, okay? Any questions? That was a lot. Okay, I'm going to go through the next one, making sense of Calcedon. Chalcedon. And for each one of those, I'm going to require one question because these are weird, weird things, okay? So, the hypostatic union, making sense of Chalcedon, number one on the back, hypostatic union, again, this is on the definitions also, definitions also, okay? So each one of these things making sense of, they're defined here, okay? So, it says, if you look at the definition sheet, Christ's nature is never without a person, Because it subsists in the person of the Divine Son. The Eternal Son of God is the person or subject of both natures. The Eternal Son of God is the person or subject of both natures. Question? Even one for more clarification? That can count as a question. Is that like...
1: Human nature is a self-nature of God nature and subsists in.
0: Remember, we're talking about persons. So the human nature (laughs) is never without a person. The human nature is never without a person because when he's born, the Son of God adds humanity to himself, right? So the human nature is never without a person because the person is who? The
2: divine Christ.
0: Yes, God the Son incarnate. So when he adds humanity to himself, his human nature is never without a person. He's never personless. So God the Son incarnate is the subject of his human nature. Okay. Follow-up question? Again, these are in sort of order, so the communication of attributes helps us flesh out the hypostatic union, okay? <clears throat> this one
2: needs a diagram. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> That's, I know this is a lot, uh, but that's why I hope you guys can keep these definitions and, again, read these books. Again, these, this, is, this is vital. We can quickly go into heresies. We need to keep this for our churches, right? Because if we preach the wrong gospel, we have lost the very essence of, or preach the wrong doctrine of Christ, we have lost the very essence of the gospel who Christ is, what he came to do. We need to keep these things. This is how we do that. It's through person and nature. So it may seem very confusing, but it is very important to keep person, nature, all this stuff. Okay, number two, communication of attributes. Communication of attributes. Can someone read that for us? It's on the discussion seat also. This is a Latin name. That doesn't care. I don't care about that. If you ever hear somebody, you can be like, I know what that means. I've heard of that. But you can just say communication of attributes. Who can read that for us? Yes, Carl, thank you
2: of attributes, this phrase teaches that whatever may be said of Christ divine, the human nature, may be said of the person of the Son. For example, Jesus can say, before Abraham was, I am, which means that he is the eternal divine Son. Thus, whatever is true of his divine nature is true of his person. At the same time, Jesus can say, I thirst, which refers to his humanity. Thus, whatever is true of his
1: human nature is true of his person. In this way, in Christ, the creator-creature
2: distinction is preserved while a true incarnation has resulted in the son, the person, being the subject of both natures and living and acting through both natures.
0: Thank you. So, <clears throat> what is this thing saying? The communication happens where? Oh, I think I heard somebody whisper it, but... <laughs> 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 yes! person, <laughs> okay. So, uh, he can say... That he is the eternal divine son. With, that's whatever is true, of his nature is true of his person. But at the same time, Jesus can say, I thirst because he's thirsty. <laughs> uh, that is true because he is God the son incarnate. So it is true of both to say he is omnipotent, yet he's thirsty at the same time because we're talking about the person of God the son incarnate. Okay, Question on that. Yes. How do we explain the self-sufficiency of God, but Christ needs for us? I, I kind of understand. but Just how would you explain that? Basically? Yeah. So if I understand your your question, you're saying how is it possible that God can, or sorry, that God the Son incarnate can be both fully God and fully man at the same time?
2: Uh, I guess that's like the bigger question. Well, you, like, I'm just thinking specifically. You said I thirst. Uh uh-huh. huh. Yes. So kind of like come down from there, like Jesus
0: kind of that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it, we have to realize here that Jesus is being, uh, this is this pointing to his, when he's thirsty, every time he goes through something that uh, is, happens to mankind, we should see it as him being obedient. Because he's being obedient in that he's not acting in his divinity, but is being obedient in his human. Uh, nature and in his divine nature to not go against the plan of the father which he in his divinity is in accord with okay he's on the same page but every time jesus is thirsty what does he say uh when peter chops the dude's ear off and he's like could i not uh, right now call down a bunch of people to kill y'all like i could do this in one second but i've got it right so at every moment he is being obedient 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 to even when he needs sleep, he was tired just as we are. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was, he was tempted with anger. All of these things, right? Every single moment. That's the beauty of what's going on here, is that at every single point, he could have, in his divinity, done away with all of his troubles. But he didn't. He was obedient. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah.
2: i so follow up with that. And this might be a rabbit trail that we don't want to get on, but is that why Jesus said the Father was greater than me? Because why not that? didn't have to assume a nature a human nature are
0: you talking about the uh the not my will is I, it that passages? What about, passage what passage are you talking about
2: i, I couldn't tell you off the my head, but where he just basically what he says um i'm going back to the father the father is greater
0: uh, john, 10. john 10 let me flip there 1428, you said? Yeah. Okay, can you read that for us? Uh, let me get a version that's not a maybe. <laughs> okay. Assuming I
2: have the right reference, i sure I was referring to. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would not rejoice because I am going to the Father. Is greater
0: than I. Thank you. So uh, it's interesting. I'm trying to read the surrounding verses. He's talking about the Helper, Holy Spirit, is going to come, whom the Father will send. Um, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let your be then be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it takes place, that uh, when it does take place, you may believe.
1: <clears throat> like them they will never perish and no one will snatch
0: them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand I am the line. Yeah thank you so these are sort of these are trinitarian passages in both the father and the son uh, talking about snatching away I I would lean towards that being some uh, an attribute of um God being like divine divinity so I'm leaning towards answering this of the, yeah, the Father is sort of the first. Like, the Father is the one who sins. The Son is the one who is begotten. Uh, so there is, like, a sort of a ordering. Even though they are all co-equal in being God, there is sort of a first person, second person, third person in the Trinity. So, does that make sense? It does, yeah. Okay. Okay, let's, we have a couple minutes left. Let's get to the extra. Turn again to the back of the paper. Uh, There's is the last, def- last definition. I will read it. It says the teaching that in the incarnation, Jesus not only retained his divine attributes but also continued to exercise them as the Trinitarian Son. Given that the Son now subsists in two natures, he is still able to live a divine life outside or extra—that's the word—that's uh, why this is called the extra—outside his human nature. The human nature of Christ, in other words, does not circumscribe. His divine life. So Christ is still fully divine. Christ is still fully divine. Okay, for the sake of time, I will take any questions that you guys have. Yes.
2: Um, sorry, guys. Three things. Yes. All right. So one, we talked about the ordering of the persons. Yes. And so just, <clears throat> I think in... The first, uh, the first question of Westminster's Catechism will uh-huh. describe the Trinity, though there is that ordering. Yeah. Father, Son, Spirit, equal in power and glory. Yes. So I think that's not to be lost. Yes. Very good. And then two, um, not that we have time to go into it, but I assume there would be like biblical references to uh, like provided throughout the outcome of the, the Council of Chalcedon? Yeah. So could reference all of this?
0: Yeah, so that was my intention with last week was to go back to those passages because those passages are all foundational for this. So email me if you want and I can send you more like detailed outline also of like, ooh, these are like some scriptural support. But I think the teaching we find in the Bible is that, but these are just clarifying sort of that stuff. Okay, and last one is just uh,
2: for either someone not yet a believer yeah. or for a young believer, um, yeah i mean this could be intimidating it's hard to work through yeah so what would be your thoughts or counsel toward not losing the gospel and sorting this stuff out
0: yeah so i think that's a great question i think a this stuff th- that's why i try to frame it we want to see who jesus is so just keep going after him day by day looking at, ooh, how do I learn who Jesus is? How do I know more about him? Maybe you're just reading the Gospels and you're just being delighted or delighting in who Jesus is. Like, ooh, he did this. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, These things are important for us to uphold, but they take time. And so it's okay if it's big and scary right now. It's big and scary to me. And I, this is a mystery. So don't think that there's going to be a point to where you just come and, ooh, one person, two natures, makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, I think that it's, we can be okay with not knowing everything. We don't need to flesh it out. What we uh, look back to the crystal clears of the gospel, uh, which we talked about last week, only God can save and he's going to do it through a man. And so be thankful that, Christ is both fully God and fully man. He is able to save to the uttermost and look to Him now for help in weakness. Any other questions? We have one more question time. No. Okay. So I just wanted to conclude sort of in that same vein uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. I know this is a lot, but I think that this is important for what Philippians 3 is teaching us. It's Philippians 3, verse 8. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that with which, through uh, faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, we can know the surpassing uh, value of knowing Christ Jesus, uh, and I hope that this has been helpful and pray that this has been helpful for that. But keep pressing into Him. Keep being amazed that Jesus would add humanity to Himself. Okay, keep being amazed at that. Don't. That's part of the reason why we have to watch against heresies, is because we don't want to lose that. But keep beholding Christ. Keep looking to Him and trying to be and striving to be changed by Him. Okay, let me pray and then we will be done. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to behold the glory of Jesus. That we would see Him as awesome and powerful and be so thankful that he came and added humanity to himself. He was thirsty for us. The all-powerful, omnipotent God was thirsty and continued to have all these uh, hardships of humanity for us. So we thank you for that, and we ask that you would bless us now. Help us to love your word, um, and we pray that you would help us now as we prepare to hear your word preached, that you would uh, help our hearts to be loving towards Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.